welcome uh, back to the Cal Chiefs podcast. My name is Ray Geik. I'm the uh, past president of Cal Chiefs. I know we haven't done a podcast in a little bit, so uh, I wanted to reach out to a good friend of mine, uh, Chief Colin Stoll from uh, San Diego Fire and Rescue, and we're going to talk a little bit today about a, a couple different topics uh, that hopefully will be interesting. And so we wanted to get this thing uh, going and and welcome you, Chief Stoll, to uh, to our podcast here at Cal Chiefs. Well, thanks for having me, Ray. Appreciate it. I think we first met each other back in the uh, National Fire Academy. And gosh, was that about 2010, 2011, I think? It was. It was. Uh, it might have been 2011. And uh, yeah, we had a good time back there, didn't we? Yeah, we had a real good time. And uh, I know you finished the project or the, the, the process. I'm a I'm uh, I'm I'm way behind on my papers and anything else I could possibly do. So I think they officially kicked me out of the program now. But, um, <laughs> but I'm glad to see you finish the the you know the the whole process and got through the National Fire Academy. It's pretty cool. Well, thank you, Ray. Um, it was it was quite an experience. Uh, happy to have it behind me. Those papers were pretty painful for sure. But uh, almost like with any other thing that we do uh, on the education side or the networking, it was really the relationships that we made out there and look where we're at today and uh, the friendships I developed out there at the EFO uh, carry on to, to my career today all over the United States. And so I'm certainly uh, fortunate to have that. Yeah, for sure. No, that's the greatest thing about one of the, one of the greatest things about going out to the National Fire Academy and just getting to, to meet people from all over, all over the country. But, um, you know, and obviously we met each other and you were in San Diego and all in Ontario at the time. And it's cool that we still get to continue that relationship today. So today we wanted to talk a little bit about what got you interested in the fire service, how you started your career. And then if you could just take a couple of minutes and kind of walk us through a little bit of the highlights of your career and kind of how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for allowing me to kind of go back to that background, give you a little uh, history on myself. I, I know that what I can recall and getting out of high school was that I knew I did not want a typical office job. I was at the time running my own landscape business. I love the outdoors. I love being physical. Um, and I love dealing with people too on all of my customers, you know, with my own business. Uh, got introduced to uh, the emergency services through a friend of mine who was an EMT on an ambulance. Kind of got introduced into that. Took an EMT class in the evening time just to try to uh, expose myself and see if I'd really like it while I was still pushing lawnmowers around. And uh, you know what? I, I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the fact that uh, every day was going to potentially be a different day. I was out there being able to help people, the excitement, the adrenaline that came with it, and the opportunity to kind of uh, keep myself physical and, and, and active out there was certainly encouraging. And so I got a short job with an ambulance company as I took some fire science classes as well, got turned on to... Um, Back then, it was a California Department of Forestry, now Cal Fire. Got a job as a seasonal. Did one season out there in Campo and uh, certainly gained a true appreciation for, for that kind of work. Even as a young kid, that kicked my butt quite a bit. But I was also in the process with the city of San Diego. You know what? I, I came in that interview as a 20-year-old, had a lot of energy, had certainly a lot of interest and a lot of passion and, and some confidence that I knew I'd be able to get through that academy and was able to convince them to give me a chance. And so I was very fortunate as a 20 year old to be able to put into the fire academy back in March of 1988 and never look back. It was a great experience. Again, built some great friendships, got out of the academy, had, had some great opportunities. And that, but one of the great, the best opportunities I had when I was a firefighter was that San Diego Fire at that time wanted to explore the possibility of training firefighters to be paramedics and putting them on uh, ALS first responders. At that time, we didn't have any paramedics uh, on our first responders. It was only uh, by the ambulance. And so uh, they had a very competitive process. I was selected, again, very young, but an opportunity to go to paramedic school. Went through that, graduated in 1990 from paramedic school, was able to kind of get the, come from the, the ground floor up in the, in, in the program here with the fire department, uh, putting paramedics on fire engines. At that time, it was only a select few engines. And then it grew and grew. And now today we've got paramedics on every first responder apparatus out there. Had a couple of chances to work some special assignments in the EMS office, worked some very busy fire stations as a firefighter and then got promoted to engineer. One of the best experiences I had as a fire engineer was able to be the assistant academy coordinator. Ran through, worked down, down the training division, got to help train our recruits, 
certainly some very long days, but really gave me a different exposure to the department and another aspect of what it's really, what it meant to be a firefighter and what it took to make sure that we are looking at after the future of our firefighters. Uh, shortly after, promoted to captain, did some great assignments there. But one of the things that I remember most about being a fire captain, it, it, my time in that rank, was I was given this special assignment by a deputy chief that at the time, uh, I didn't think liked me, but now he really gave me a great opportunity. You know, at, at that time, the IFF came out with the wellness, uh, the health and wellness initiative, and we were awarded a grant. And we had no idea what we were doing. We had no groundwork, no roadmap to follow. And basically, we were given a million bucks to start up a wellness program. And it was kind of just handed to me and said, make it happen. And that was back in 2005. And we still have what I would think is one of the best wellness programs in, in, in this nation. Uh, back then, it was really concentrated on the physical aspects of us to make sure that we were healthy. And now that has really grown into the mental health, health and well-being as well. But that was one of the best experiences I had and, and another opportunity to kind of really develop my skills as, as an administrative professional and, and grow. I was assigned a battalion chief, did some stints on, on administration, EMS as well. Uh, then went to deputy chief, what we call our ship commanders. Most departments call them a division chief. So we have one uh, ship commander on duty 24 hours a day for that assignment. And so I was in charge of all 48 stations at that time. Spent some time doing that and kind of enjoying my time back in operations. And I was quickly sucked back into the, uh, the administrative role as the EMS deputy chief. Did that for a sh short while. And then I uh, was promoted to assistant chief of emergency operations. That was, that was quite a tough assignment. I mean, not only do we have lifeguards under the emergency operations, but all of our fire stations, special operations, air operations, hazardous materials, fire investigation, all of that's under the emergency operations. It was, it, it was a grind. It was some long hours. I really was learning a lot, but it, it, it definitely took a toll on uh, how much responsibility that position had. You know, um, kind of a personal story. I, I mean, that was when I was just getting done with the EFO program. I had just graduated, so I was an assistant chief at that time. Chief Brian Fennessy was our fire chief. And yeah. anybody who knows Brian, you know, he, retirement's not even on his radar at any time. And he knew I wanted to be a fire chief at the time. And he said, hey, Colin, if, if you want to be a fire chief, probably you're going to have to go somewhere else because I think I'm going to be in this office for a very long time. And, you know, he was one of my biggest supporters and encouraged me to seek outside the department if I, if I did want to be a fire chief. And so an opportunity came up here in San Diego County to be a fire chief of Heartland Fire Department. I mean, eight stations, you know, a little over 100 personnel. I took the opportunity. It was uh, it was a tough decision leaving my home department uh, that I've been at since since I was 20 years old, but really kind of taking an opportunity to um, put to practice my EFO, my bachelor's degree in public administration, and some of the things that I really wanted to do as a fire chief. And so I went out there, and that was in uh, November of 2016. Went out to be the fire chief there. Sure enough, about a year later or so. Brian decided to move up north. Next thing I know, he was he was going to Orange County. Him and I talked a little bit about about the job back here in San Diego, and if uh, if if it was something that was would still be attractive and and that I would like to do, and I certainly was interested in it. Uh, I was given the opportunity to compete and went through the whole process. Felt very fortunate to be selected back in uh, August of 2018 to come back home and be the fire chief here for the city of San Diego. Again, never regretted that decision. I think I was fortunate, benefited from my short time away. It gave me another perspective as a, as a fire chief still, but away from the city of San Diego, kind of let me catch my breath, rejuvenate. And I came back, I think, with a lot of energy. And then as a fire chief, I think uh, the first few years, I was throwing a whole lot of curveballs, everything from uh, uh, COVID to social unrest to uh, telestaff complete crash. And we were back to doing staffing for fire, 50 fire stations on a chalkboard. I mean, we, we went through it all, but uh, never, never regret any of it. Uh, I have loved my career and, and really love working for this department, the, uh, the members of this department and the city of San Diego. Yeah, that's awesome. You, you had, uh, you, you touched on a few things that I'm going to go back on uh, yep. at the very beginning of, of uh, kind of talking about you know, brought you to the fire service. You just knew that you weren't ever going to do a desk job. And I think I recall telling myself that as well. And it seems as though listening to your entire story, we've done a lot of time in an office 
you know, and uh, so I guess we didn't really stand up to what our, our goal was as young men. <laughs> no, we did. You know, those, those fours and sixes, I sure loved them. And, and there were <laughs> plenty of times in my early years I said, I will never work in an office. Are you kidding me? I love this. Yeah. But as, as we develop, as we grow older, I think we all recognize that we've got more to contribute and it maybe in a different dimension at, at uh, something else that we can do for our department to, to further its growth and our growth professionally. We've taken, we've, we've taken up on that opportunity at the sacrifice of here we are in an office, right? Yep, exactly. No, I've, you know, went down a similar path in, in the fire service and, you know, I always look back on my time of being on a fire engine or a fire truck. It's some of the best times of my life. But the reality is, is that these organizations, they're big machines and you need people that are that are willing to do this kind of work as well. So we both got into that. So it's interesting. I want to touch on this in a little bit and get your perspective once we kind of get into some different things. But I, I didn't know that you had gone to a smaller department for a bit. So that's going to be interesting talking to you as, as a Metro fire chief. That's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today is because you're, you're not only the uh, fire chief for San Diego fire rescue, but you're also the president for the metropolitan fire uh, association, which is, which is part of uh, Cal chiefs. You're a huge part of what we, what we do in Cal chiefs. And we look at the relationship we have with our, our Metro uh, agencies is, is a big part of what we do. And we look to you for guidance in, in the Metro Chiefs because, you know, at the end of the day, it's the Metro Chiefs is made up of the 16 largest metropolitan fire departments in, in California. And uh, you're you're part of that, but you're also the, the president, you know, kind of talking a little bit about looking for that smaller department and obviously having a tremendous amount of experience in a large size metropolitan department kind of what are some of the differences that you saw in that little bit of time that you got to spend and it's it's really interesting as being the fire chief of both um having uh, you know having to deal with the things you have to deal with as a fire chief what's the what are some of the similarities and what are some of the big differences between working from a big metro department to uh you know a smaller eight station department well if i would say that if, if you had to look at the similarities obviously we're we're there to uh to follow the mission of the department and, and, and what our role is as, as fire chief to guide that workforce and make sure that uh, we, have, we follow the principles and values of, of not only the fire service, but for our department as well. But it's recognizing what the community needs and what is gonna meet their, their expectations and what's gonna provide the services that are needed for those, those communities. And, and let's face it, they're not, they're not all the same. And each community and each jurisdiction is going to have its own challenges, whether it be critical infrastructure, whether it be uh, certain exposures or risks that are that are unique to those jurisdictions. But I think as far as the similarity, we are all uh, have the have the same goal in mind, and that is to lead our folks to providing the best services possible to the communities. And it's reminding them regularly that we are there to support them, to not only provide the resources, the funding, but to, to keep the focus there of what our mission is and why we exist as an organization. And it's often kind of lost of why we do exist as an organization, and that is to help people in their time of need. That's our only reason for being here. We're there to serve, and we are in the customer service um, business. And sometimes that's not going to fix the problem but we can still provide good customer service to our communities, even if we can't make their problem go away completely. But I think that's similar for all departments. doesn't matter, big or large. Yeah, but certainly sure. differences now are going to be when you, when you go to a bigger department, everything is magnified. Um, yeah, you've got a lot more funding available to you, but um, you've got a lot more different, different work groups that you're dealing with. Um, you're, you have a lot more needs. But you also have the, uh, a little bit more of the, uh, the politics involved, too, that are going to certainly play a part in it. And you've also got your responsibilities to all those communities, but to your electeds, to, uh, to making and to your workforce is the number one, to make sure that you are providing them exactly what they need to be able to grow as an, as an organization. One of the things you had talked a little bit about was being a fire chief at a at a smaller organization and having the opportunity to be at one at a at a metropolitan fire department 
there's a lot of similarities, a lot of differences as well. But I, I think one of the things that, you know, having the opportunity to talk to chiefs up and down the state is uh, some of some of the uh, the chiefs that work for a smaller department, they have to kind of do a lot more than people that have a lot of staff and they still have to be the fire chief. They still have to do all the political stuff. They have to do a lot of those things. But I talked to a lot of them. It's like, hey, what are you, what are you doing today? It's like, well, I'm actually physically doing our budget this year. And, <laughs> you know, they're doing those things that uh, they don't have the support that a Metro fire chief or, or even myself would have. What do you find yourself, you know, obviously you're probably not sitting there, you're overseeing the budget, but I doubt seriously, Chief, that you're sitting there and cranking out a budget as the fire chief. What What are the things, maybe you are, I don't know how San Diego works doing that, but uh, what are the things that you uh, as a Metro chief are, are generally working on? You're right. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not physically putting those budgets together, but I do give the intent. I do give the areas that I want to see uh, increased. We do go through a, a, a pretty lengthy budget process here. It starts in October. Our budget's not even approved until June. It takes that long to go through that. And I do present our budget and make sure that I'm able to answer all the questions that we're, for anything that we are making adjustments to. Um, so for sure, for sure on that end. But I think it, as far as what I see a difference, and you're right, for the, for the smaller departments, that chief is not only doing the budget, but they're designing apparatus and fire stations and, and uh, drafting SOPs and, and everything like that, that that I am not doing. But I do know that what, what takes up a lot of my time is um, the involvement with the other departments, the overlap of the city operations and making sure that we are meeting the city's strategic operations and the, and the mayor's uh, desire. And we'll take an instance that, uh, or we'll take an issue that really overlaps all the departments, homelessness, right? How that affects everybody. And, and our city is certainly trying to make efforts to, to, to make some changes and improvements in that area. And a lot of it does fall to the fire department, to the police department. And so we are all involved with the homeless strategies department. And so we are trying to develop um, how we are going to tackle this as an executive team. And so we regularly have meetings on, on things such as that. Also on five-year outlooks. And I and probably that's something that maybe a, a smaller department doesn't necessarily get, get spend too much time on is where are we going to be at in, in fiscal year 29? And those are things that I have to lay out because if they're not on our roadmap for a five-year outlook, I'm not going to get budget funding for that even next year to start in that process. So they really want to be able to project those things out. Where are our future fire stations going to be? What's the staffing going to be like? How are we going to get those apparatus? And, uh, and, and how am I going to replace these expensive helicopters for sure? And so those are, those are some of the large-scale things that I'm working on. Yeah, I can see how I'm... Obviously, I work for a department that's a little bit smaller. It's a, you know, we have we have 11 stations coming up soon. And so I'd say that one of the advantages for myself in that five-year forecast is that I don't have to be, I don't have as big a machine to roll than a lot of the Metro chiefs. So I can anticipate looking, you know, a year, maybe two years in advance, and I can make things happen fairly quickly. But I would imagine that an organization of your size it just doesn't move that fast. Government, the bigger it gets, the slower it gets. That would be one of the challenges. I would is that something that challenges metro-sized departments of just anticipating that three, four, five years out. That what am I going to need for that? Is that is that challenging to do it at your level? It is really challenging, and and we are a machine. We're a slow machine. It's clunky. Um, it it is not efficient by any means. Everything from personnel on how we hire folks takes a long time to infrastructure, to capital improvements. And I'll give you an example. Um, we, we are trying to move forward with a new training facility site. We're currently down at NTC. Um, that land is gonna be transferred over in 2027 to the Pure Water Project, which is uh, a water filtration, huge $3 billion program that's gonna take over that acreage down at, um, down at NTC. We've identified some land and I've spent two years just trying to get the CCR amendments changed to be able to where we can get that zone meeting with the other neighbor uh, ownership out there to make sure that they're going to accept this. Laying into uh, feasibility studies, design studies, how that's going to lay out, 
I mean, that has taken a lot of time. And that's not something that I think you would typically think that a fire chief is going to be responsible for. And yes, we do have capital improvement programs. But when you go out to the communities to have meetings on a potential new training facility, they want to see the fire chief there. They want the fire chief answering these questions about how loud is it going to be? What's it going to smell like? How much smoke is going to be coming up off there? And so those are things that uh, certainly we look far out to make sure that I can address. Your association meets every month. And I know there's a lot of uh, hot topic items that all of you talk about. What are some of those things that are kind of at the top and how are you dealing with some of those? Well, it's a good question, Ray. Um, that that does point back to some of what you said on the similarities of the smaller departments. And a lot of the topics that we are discussing are impacting all departments up and down the state of California. Uh, certainly going through COVID, that, was, that, that consumed a lot of our time. Of, and we were trying to learn off of each other what the best practices were. How are, you, how are you continuing to be able to provide the services out there with the impacts of COVID and how that's affecting our folks? And so we all kind of labored through that together. Staffing has, has always been on, on the agenda and it's for, for discussion. And although things are much better today than they were three years ago on the staffing, we're all, all the large departments are still struggling with staffing, especially on paramedic. Um, and so if you've got firefighter paramedics in your agency, how you are able to recruit and retain those paramedics is extremely difficult. And I feel very fortunate that San Diego Fire has um, our own in-house paramedic school. We're the only, the only fire department in the state of California that, that has our own paramedic program within our department. And we're just now starting class eight. So we've run eight classes through, but we, we're convinced that that's the only way that we're going to be able to uh, recruit and, and, and get the paramedics that we need to be able to continue with um, providing ALS on, on the first responders. EMS is impacting all of us, everything from the changes that we're seeing, you know, to the Alliance model, to uh, bringing it all the way in house, to contracting it out, the struggles that we're seeing with the public providers and, and, and making sure we're managing that and, and the changes there. Um, the APOT, you know, with the, with the, the patient offload times that are, that are challenging all of us and trying to, as large organizations, influence the right people, the right bodies to be able to make some of those structural changes. I mean, the hospital association is not just going to move because we asked them to, to make some changes. And we've been very unsuccessful in that. And so as the state, and we're realizing that nobody really has that leverage against the hospital association. LEMSA has proven they haven't had it. EMSA really has not been able to, even at the state level, been able to do that. So as large uh, metropolitan fire chiefs, we recognize that the, way, the only way we're going to probably get some changes done is to raise our voice to use our leverage as large organizations and, and try to push that our way. But th those, those are just some examples. Um, we are all struggling and, and, and trying to see where this, the uh, PFOS is gonna take us and the carcinogens, the exposures that we're seeing. Um, mental health for our workforce is, is not new and, and is not any different for large departments than it is a small department, it's just more numbers and how we're dealing with those things and making sure that we're keeping our, our, our folks healthy and, and on that side. And then I will say that um, the last one that we talk about all the time is recruiting a diverse workforce, making sure that our workforce reflects the communities that we serve. And this profession specifically has been a difficult one to attract diversity and to bring them into the fire service. And it, we have concentrated our efforts tremendously and we've added more people, more resources, more career fairs, more visits to colleges, and we are still struggling with making sure that our profession is attractive to, to those populations and so that we can uh, be able to meet our goals of diversity and, and have that uh, represent our department. And we're no different than, than all the other 16 large departments in the state of California, being able to attract more women uh, more minorities into the fire service. Speaking to some of your peers that are Metro chiefs, I'm sure all of you have some conversations on, on this. What are, why do you, has anyone really come up with a why? Why is that such a challenge? We, we know it's a challenge. We know it's out there. It's incredibly difficult to uh, just do recruitment 
But then to your point, recruiting for diversity, um, why why do you think that's such a challenge? Do any, like to yourself or any, has anybody really looked at it and said, you know, what's behind that? Um, we've had those discussions. I, I won't say that we've done any scientific analysis on this, but in talking with the folks that have either chosen to come into the fire service or have chosen even after recruitment efforts, chosen not to, you know, um, the fire profession is still perceived as a, as a white male profession. And uh, until all of our workforces have a more, uh, a di maybe a different look that maybe to, to the candidate seems more welcoming, seems more um, that they will be accepted into that group. It, it, it's hard to, to get over those first couple of hurdles. And um, we saw that in the number of women that we had in, in San Diego Fire Department. For a time, we were a leading organization in the, in, in the country as far as percentages of women on our job. It's, it slowly declined, and it was a struggle to start making strides back because as a female candidate, knowing that if you're going to go into an organization where maybe there's only a few females that you can relate to, that you can, um, that you can feel side by side with as, as your peer there, uh, it, it's a tough one. Um, it, it, it's probably not a desirable um, work environment that you want to. And so it's, it, it's up to us as leaders to make sure that we break down those barriers and that we encourage that um, and do everything we can to make sure that everyone feels accepted on our job and that we offer all of those opportunities to, to them for them to be successful. And that's where you've really seen us grow in the Girls Empowerment Camp, in the Women's Fire Prep Academy, to make sure that we are um, recruiting them and training them for success. The last thing we need to do is to select a large group of people that are unsuccessful in the academy or unsuccessful when they get out in, into those fire stations. We need to prepare them from the ground up so that they can be successful. It's interesting. I I, um, I had an opportunity a, a few for actually last week to sit down with my captains and just have kind of a one-on-one -on -one with, with my captains. And obviously we had the chief officers in there, but we didn't allow anyone that wasn't a captain in the room. And one of the, one of the questions I asked was, you know, what, what are some of the challenges for you on the floor? And one of the, one of the things that kept coming back was, you know, the fire service has changed, you know, it's not, it's not the same, you know, when, when you and I got into fire service, we were, we were separated by a couple of years getting on because I got on in 93, but you know, the reality is, is that I don't remember going to the amount of strike teams and the out-of-town assignments that they have today. Um, I don't know from your experience, but I certainly didn't. And um, it seems as though now it's not uncommon for our folks to work, you know, incredible runs of days in a, in a row, um, overhead assignments, strike teams, those types of things. And one of the things that kept coming back was, there's a group of, of, of newer firefighters that are coming in that that's not real attractive to them. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I don't know if you're seeing that the same in, in your organization or even just, you know, having conversations with the other uh, Metro chiefs, but we're definitely seeing it. And it, it, it it's, it's going to be an interesting conversation because at the end of the day, we still have a, to your point earlier, we have a pretty significant mission in the state of California with, with what we're uh, faced with. But when you don't have a workforce that is really cares about going on those things, and not, and I'm just generalizing, but that's not that's not what I remember. <laughs> Ray, I, I couldn't have said it better. And um, not only do we have a younger generation that is not driven by more money, we can't throw more money at them. Those strike teams, you know, they can be profitable, right? Yep. This generation doesn't care. And you know what? Hats off to them. And I think also something that we saw coming out of COVID was that people recognized that uh, the importance of family time, the importance of their time off, and um, they're, they're not willing to sacrifice them for the job, um, for the strike teams, for the extra money. And you know what? Hats off to them. But what it does to us now is, as, as chiefs is we need to be responsive to that. We need to figure out then how are we going to continue to support the mutual aid system? How are we going to continue to send people out on the overhead assignments if we have fewer people that are willing to take on those long-term assignments and, and how, we, how we adapt? And I got to believe that 10 years from now, it's going to look entirely different on maybe 
how we do these and how we staff our stations. But um, you're right, the, 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 this generation is not driven by money and, and is not also not driven by rank. I, I've got, I could promote right now 70 engineers, 70. And I have run now five engineer tests in the last two years. And I average at about 20 applicants, maybe at a time, maybe get 15 out of that. Um, I can't catch up with the number of attrition and these firefighters, um, they're comfortable where they're at. They're happy doing what they want. They, they want that exposure to the back seat. They know that they'll have time in their future and they're not as hungry to climb up the, the career ladder as fast as maybe you and I were. And again, that's not wrong. It's just different. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I, I don't know if this is reflective of your career, but, uh, you know, in, in my career, our engineers, they, they just never seem to retire. And, you know, when you took a test, you, you know, you take a test in, in my organization with 20 other people, and there was two promotions off that list in a two-year list. And that is not today. It is, today is, if I don't want to do it because I know I'm going to pass the test. And I know if, well, if I do pass the test, I'm getting a job and next week I'll be an engineer or be a captain. And I think everyone's, to, to your point, is pumping the brakes a little bit to go, hey, you know, I, I don't want to be an engineer two years into me becoming a firefighter or a captain three or four or five years into becoming a captain. And it's going to definitely be interesting, but to your, I think to your point in the, in the greater perspective is um, how's our state mutual aid system going to look like in, in five to 10 years, we, we, us as fire chiefs, we had, that's going to be a serious problem if we don't start looking at it um, and start figuring that piece out. I, I don't think there's a one solution, but I do think, there's probably a balanced solution out there somewhere, and uh, we just we're we're going to need to definitely be uh, on top of that and thinking about it because I think it's going to sneak up on us pretty quick. We are, um, and, and we we do not practice what we preach. And I think I I do I do my best to preach uh, a work life balance. I don't think you and I probably had that. Go, go, that? Up That's I'm, I'm just going to say we did. Maybe you had a little bit more balance, but. Uh, you know what? We didn't. And so again, um, I respect the, 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 I respect that perspective of, of the generation. And now it falls to me and my other staff to figure out how are we going to make sure that um, we are still meeting the needs of the mutual aid system and being able to provide uh, the fire suppression activities um, that's expected of us. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a, a challenge. Moving on, I know um, one of the things that your agency does and has been doing for quite some time is is really the homelessness challenges we have up and down the state. And you had mentioned earlier that being part of your city executive team, homelessness obviously isn't just in, in the big cities. It's all over uh, California. And the reality is it's a massive challenge for all of us to uh, to deal with. Can you talk us a little through what is San Diego Fire and Rescue doing and has been doing with the homelessness crisis in the state? Well, um, first of all, we are gaining more and more in our appreciation of the impacts that it's having to all of the emergency responders. Um, we, we ran some, some reports for um, calendar year 2020, 2022, I'm sorry. And uh, we ran over 53,000 calls that were related to uh, mental health and homelessness on that. And when you turn those into hours, right? And how many people that is that could staff that, that's a big draw on, on, on our resources. And when you're talking about not only responding on those calls, but then having the ambulance take those to emergency rooms because we don't have any alternate uh, facilities we can take them to because we're bound by such strict protocols that that's a further draw on the system. So we have, we have, we have gained a true appreciation for the impact of homeless mental health, and they really go hand in hand. I mean, that you have to take both of those uh, social factors into account and together. Um, we are certainly trying to build out the services that we can provide to these folks. Uh, San Diego Fire was one of the original pilot programs for community uh, paramedicine. And we call it community health down here. And we like to say fire-based community health because we really want to make sure that 
we are bringing this into the fire department. This started uh, nearly 20 years ago with what we call the resource access program. It started out as a RAP program, and it was concentrating on just high frequency 911 users. And if we could just tackle that, that top 20 individuals who was amounting to like 8% of the overall you know, 911 calls in certain areas, um, we could make a dent in that. And we really were making headways on that. But really what it was doing, it was, it was, it was identifying what other social interventions, what other um, services that they needed other than 911, transport to the emergency room, four hours later, back out the streets, and we were running on them again. And that, that was just a vicious cycle. And so the resource access program was really uh, an intervention, made some differences in there. That kind of get our foot in the door with community paramedicine. Uh, we are one of the pilot programs. We've got a curriculum here. We are training up um, more folks to be able to provide that. We've got tremendous support by our elected officials to branch out that program. We've got a tremendous amount of funding. What we are still lacking though is the state leading this through the LEMSAs to being able to allow us to put it in place and implement it. And we know that a lot of that legislation passed a long time ago and is sunsetting really quick on us. And COVID obviously caused some delays, but not the delays that we're seeing now. We really need the bureaucracy to get out of the way of this thing and allow us to expand the services that we're providing to these folks, um, homeless, mental health, substance abuse, all of those things to be able to lessen the impact that it's having to the 911 system. Yeah, I know um, I had the opportunity with, uh, with with President Rice to sit with, um, you know, with, with the governor about care court. And to your point, it's all tied together, you know, the mental health, substance abuse, homelessness, all of these challenges are, but there's only so much we can do from a fire department standpoint, because there's a lot of the things we, we could do to, to, to help um, alleviate a lot of these pressures. We just don't have the ability to do because uh, we don't have access centers. We don't have some of those other things that, that we truly is, is, a, is a missing part to this. You know, not every person that we go on that's having a you know a mental health crisis or they're 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 having challenges with homelessness or substance abuse needs to go to the hospital, but that's the only place we have to go right now. And until no, those we, things start to open up, we, we don't we don't have a lot of places to go, unfortunately. We don't we don't have enough mental health beds. We don't have places to take them. Uh, we do know that SB 43 is going to expand the definition of um, who's eligible for conservatorship, which is great. It's long due. I mean that that thing. The original um, definition was written back in 1960, I think. But what it's going to be able to do is somebody, somebody's going to be eligible for conservatorship beyond just not being able to take care of their food, shelter, and water. You know, somebody who can't manage their medical care needs is now going to qualify. And I think some of these folks really do need help that all the way to conservatorship. But, you know, what we are also realizing with community paramedicine is um, this this is not going to look like we envisioned community paramedicine five, eight years ago. We envisioned these these community paramedic uh, personnel traveling around maybe in a, in a van, uh, I you know, working, responding to people that didn't need 911 services from a fire engine. But what we're realizing is the additional skilled personnel that we need to run a managed uh, community paramedic program. That's the social workers. That's the uh, involvement with our city attorney's office to be able to enter into conservatorship. Uh, it's the cooperation with the county. We can't do this alone. And a lot of these social services needs fall to the county's responsibility. But unfortunately, we're having the ones that, that are responding to those calls here in the city of San Diego. Yeah, for sure. Um, kind of in it's we can we could probably and we probably should come back and <laughs> have a podcast with uh some of uh the other metro chiefs i love to get into some of the the more of that um because i think it's just a it's a topic we need to really start diving into and i know a lot of agencies like yourself have been diving into it for a long time and uh but what what are some of those uh, unique things that uh that san diego uh, fire and rescue is doing uh, to combat the the, the mental health uh, crisis that we're having in homelessness. Is there some specific things that your agency is doing? Well, I, I know that our mayor is pushing for a lot of changes at the state level, more funding, 
some of those legislative changes that, that I mentioned. Um, we are building our own team now in the city of San Diego and not relying on the county to be able to take over these services. Uh, we are looking forward to Care Court kicking in October 1st. Um, but we know that that's also going to be a very small population, right? It's got to be voluntary associated with schizophrenia. And um, we need more than that. We will definitely going to have to expand on, on how we can get those people the resources and the needs. We're, we're partnering up with police department. We also have um, homeless uh, strategies. It's its own department here in the city of San Diego. And so between the three of us, we're working very closely on making sure that we're um, that we're able to provide a vast variety of services to these folks um, and not just transporting them to the emergency department. Yeah, I think it's interesting um, to your point, like, you know, in the city of Ontario, you know, probably no different than a lot of cities. Uh, we don't have the ultimate responsibility for um, for the homeless population. Uh, generally, that's a state and a county uh, type of uh, service. But I think the it's starting to tip over to the point that cities aren't waiting around anymore and they're going to start taking it into their own hands because they, they don't have a choice and they're going to have to do something um, moving forward. We have Ontario is starting a coast team, which is a community outreach uh, team that, you know, we're working with our police department and a county social worker to put them on a response vehicle. And essentially when a, a mental health crisis call comes in or our people are out there with the engines and trucks, call them, they will respond and, um, and they'll get on scene and, and, and work through that challenge. Having, having a, a Ontario firefighter paramedic, having a Ontario police officer and a county uh, um, caseworker, you know, social worker. And, you know, we haven't started it. We, we stole that idea from our good friends in, in Fontana and, and San Bernardino County, and we're going to implement it. So we'll, we'll be the third uh, coast team in the county, but it's one of those things that we have to, we have to try different things and, uh, and try to try to work through it, but it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. But um, you're exactly right. Ray. We, we can't wait for the counties anymore. We, we've, we've been patient. Um, we're still waiting on limbs so they'll approve our, uh, some of the curriculum so that we can start our own community paramedic training uh, and more of our folks. But uh, I think it's time that we can't wait anymore. It's, it's too, too big of a draw on our resources. It's having an impact on our workforce. And so you're right, we're combining with those. And, and you mentioned a key piece in that, in that three-person team, and that's the social worker. We know that you have to have a case manager. You have to know, have somebody who can navigate through all of that uh, red tape on the county side to make sure that that's ultimately where the services are going to come from. Yeah, because a lot of those services come from the county. We simply um, don't know what those services are available and, and so on and so forth. But um, I was it's interesting, a lot of the cities, when you talk to cities, I, I think the fear was from a city perspective, uh, maybe, maybe you feel the same as that if we, we provide these services, um, then you know what, we're going to open the door for everyone to come into our city. And I, I think that argument's kind of going out the wayside because it the it's it's just on the scale is too is too far the other side now, and I think cities are no longer fearful of providing services within their city because of fear that it's going to you know create um, an influx of 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 a homeless population in their city, and maybe that was a viable fear um, back you know in in the day, but I, I think it's just so it's all over the place now. And um, it's one of those things that, that truly affects almost every community in California now. No, you're right. And I think the concerns of setting a precedent is is, is long, it, it's lost now. And it's realizing that, hey, we've got this right in front of us now, it's gotta be dealt with. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't feel like that's going to attract more people to, to seek those services just because we're providing them. But we owe it to them. We owe it to our communities and we owe it to our workforce to be able to come up with some solutions for this. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think we have a, a future podcast maybe uh, to talk about and, and uh, yes. we can dive into that a little bit deeper as well. Um, obviously, you know, your department's been in the, in the paramedic game for a long time. However, you haven't been in the ambulance game for a long time. And uh, like, like uh, a lot of departments are, are getting either pushed into the ambulance game or, or wanting to get in the ambulance game to provide a better service. 
Obviously, there's some challenges up and down the state and quite frankly, nationally for um, a lot of uh, private ambulance companies on, on where they're at right now to provide the, the service that we need and our citizens need. And it's kind of created some some challenges for us in the fire service to, um, you know, I, I know in a lot of places up and down the state, they're getting on scene and not having an ambulance get there for 20, 30, 40 minutes sometimes is it's not the best uh, indicator of, of patient care. So I know, you know, just talking to you and seeing what's going on and reading the newspapers and watching the news articles, you guys are going through the same uh, challenges and you guys have kind of taken a different approach. You mind walking us through your approach to what you've been doing with the ambulance um, challenges you guys have had in in, uh, in San Diego? Sure. Um, well, we, we certainly have uh, had our share of struggles down here. Uh, we've had a model here for, for since about 19, well, 1997, I think is when we really changed back over to contracting with public providers here. Uh, we have we have provided ALS on all first responders, including our truck companies, but we've relied on the privates to, to transport these patients. And we've entered into contracts with perform, these are performance contracts with response time compliance in, in all of the zones throughout the city. And uh, we have gone through now a couple of providers and we had uh, a new contract awarded to FAL um, that, that made some significant promises, did some improvements in, in a lot of hours and staffing to, our, to the city of San Diego, but we never saw it. Um, whether they overpromised or there was also a lot of challenges thrown at them. Timing was not in their in, in their favor, right? With uh, COVID and workforce shortages and people just really not being attracted to the EMS field for a profession, uh, we saw a significant decline in the ambulance unit hours out in the streets, which subsequently was reflected in the response times. Um, Financial penalties, that was great. We were bringing in money hand over fist in, in, in penalties, but that was not our goal. That was not what those things were really ever intended to do. Um, we weren't in this to make money. We were in it to make sure that we were getting uh, the services out there and the ambulances that we needed, and we weren't getting it. And um, it, it became evident that we needed to make some significant changes quickly. Uh, we could not wait for the contract to expire. Going through a breach contract was going to be very difficult. It was going to have some legal challenges. And so we met with Falk. We, we worked with our elected officials, and we really felt like the best course of action was to move towards the alliance model. Let the fire department take over the oversight of this of, of the EMS system, control the schedule, control the deployment, um, manage the quality assurance, all of the things that we feel like are very important. And we will contract with the private companies to provide just the ambulances personnel at a unit at our cost, and that we would be able to control how many hours are out there, where we want those hours, what days we want those hours, and have a little bit more control over that. It also was gonna give us the opportunity to take advantage of the PPGMT, the higher reimbursements now coming to where we would be able to reinvest it back into the system. And so through a lot of negotiations, amendments to the contract, um, we got to where we are gonna be at now October 1st, we're implementing the Alliance model. We'll, we'll go in uh, into service here in the city of San Diego. We're contracting with not just one provider, but with two. So both Falk and AMR will be providing the uh, unit hours. We saw that is really giving us some flexibility. Uh, the challenges with one provider being able to provide the number of hours that we demand, um, we saw was a, was a challenge and also um, good hamstrings. And so we saw that bringing in another provider and being able to kind of work off of both of them to fill some voids was, was, was beneficial to us. And so we've got both, con, uh, both providers uh, with, those, with those. And we really see that we're hopeful that the revenue and expenditure projections are going to allow us to grow the system, put more money towards uh, community health, put more money maybe towards nurse navigation, build out our paramedic school training, and provide more hours out in the streets uh, for those with those ambulances. It gives us also an opportunity to look at the balance of ALS and BLS and how we're utilizing those those units. And so um, we didn't do it the conventional way. We didn't put this out for bid under the Alliance model and kind of have to go through that. Um, we definitely went at a different angle because of the circumstances that presented themselves, but we feel very optimistic and encouraged by, by where we're gonna be. And uh, we look forward to this change October 1. How did um 
I mean, just talking through a little bit with uh, Falk and maybe even AMR, what was there when you first started talking to them about this this concept? Were they open to it? Were they were they willing to talk about it, or were they pushing back? And like, what were I don't know if you could talk about some of those things, but what was their initial feel about it? Well, you know, I, when 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 Falk was struggling at the early part of this contract the alliance model was not really discussed or our options um, we were more into the penalties the fines we're going to find you know are we going to eventually get the breach and of course they they didn't want that and we didn't want that either um, we, we tried to find a soft landing for this and i think they saw the benefits of maybe losing some of the risk that's associated with a performance-based contract and and frankly they're out of that risk right they provide the number of hours they collect the check and and now the risk falls to us and so we started to talk about that and, and they saw the benefits to that to, for them we certainly saw the benefits of us being able to participate in the ppgmt and growing this system and so i think we really saw this as mutually beneficial uh, amr saw it as well uh, i know that they were uh, discouraged that they did not win this this current contract they've always been part of the, of the communities of san diego and I think they also saw this as an opportunity to help the EMS system here in San Diego, rebuild relationships, play part of the solution to this. And so that they were very encouraged and, and, uh, and interested in becoming part of this alliance model as well. It's going to be interesting to see how a lot of the ambulance stuff, I mean, there's things going up all over the, you know, in the state and San Bernardino County, obviously there's, uh, stuff going on in in Santa Barbara and and um, and up north in Sonoma and you know kind of all over the place right now. So I think to your point, there is no one way to do it. There's a lot of different ways to do this, and there's so many factors to it that you know if agencies are interested in in um, in providing a better service to um, their community, there is no one size fits all. For, for any of these things, you know, and you, you got to be creative and you got to try different things. But the reality is, is that uh, we can't let our system fail either. And no, yeah. uh, that's, that's not acceptable. And, and you're right. There is not only is there not one right way of doing it, um, but there's not one way of how you get there to to wherever your destination is going to be or whatever that model that you're going to set in on. And it really falls to the to the lemsis, right? Let's face it. What, what I didn't realize until I be, became more involved with Metro Chiefs in finding out what the relationships are between the agencies and the LEMSAs. And it's really, um, those play a significant role in how it, it's all gonna fall out. And fortunately, we have an exclusive operating area here in the city of San Diego. We work very closely with our LEMSA. Uh, they saw the benefits in us taking this over as well. And they were supportive. And, and cooperative along the way. I can't say that for a lot of the other jurisdictions that are going through the same process that they'd like to be where we're at. Yeah, I, I know you, I know your agency and I know San Diego has a, a good relationship with their, with their LEMSA. And to your point, that's, that's unfortunately not the case up and down the state. Um, I think that, you know, we can certainly learn a lot from the relationship that, that, that you enjoy. Um, speaking of relationships, you know, you had obviously a relationship with Falk before you went into this alliance model. Uh, you have a relationship with them now. Is there anything different there about, is it, I mean, before you were fighting them, penalizing them, uh, so on and so forth. Now, there's there's got to be some sort of a, 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 a partnership now. Does it feel like a partnership? Does it feel like um, you're working together differently? Or um, how how has, if any, has the relationship changed at all from from your perspective and from your level? Well, it, it definitely changed. Um, I won't say that, that the feeling of a partnership is any stronger. We were really a partner at the beginning of their contract because the fire department oversaw still a lot of what they were going to do and had to approve it. But um, I would say that over the time, they have realized the role the fire department plays here in, the San, in San Diego as far as governing the EMS system. And they have taken their appropriate role in, hey, we're going to do what we do best. And that is ambulances, medical supplies, put a paramedic and an EMT on there and, and let the fire department who knows the city, knows the communities, knows what we need to do out there, um, guide that. And it took them a while to kind of 
come to that. They, this was their first time here in San Diego. And I think in other organ, in other jurisdictions or areas that they that they provided services, they came in and they just ran the EMS system, mm-hmm. and that was not the case here. And it took them a very long time to to kind of accept that and understand that. But I would say our, our relationship is is very good now, um, as long as they can produce the number of hours that we need, and, and we're going to get there. But what will be interesting is over the next couple of years, as we evaluate the alliance model. Is the alliance model truly where we want to be down the road? And what I have pledged to the elected is I'm not I don't know what the next RFP is going to look like. And we pledge to put that out here in the next couple of years for sure within the next two years. But it may not be the alliance model. It may be a hybrid. Maybe the fire department is going to run some ambulances and we're only going to contract out with some. We've got some electeds who want us to really evaluate bringing it entirely in house. And what's the cost analysis on that and some benefits there? So I really, when people say, what's your next RFP going to look like? It's only two years down the road. I really don't know. We're going to see how this alliance model works for us. We're going to see if those revenues do really benefit our system and we're able to have a pool uh, and a surplus to reinvest and improve our, our services. And we're going to do a comparison to what it would look like bringing it entirely in-house. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting, certainly, to see how yours plays out. But um not only that, but just kind of around California, you know, there's so many different versions of what this looks like. And um, just having the opportunity to work in Cal Chiefs and, and be the past president and so on and so from just talking to so many people up and down the state. It's really interesting that, you know, in, in the old days, th- there was a model or a, or a mantra, I guess, on both sides. And it was kind of like almost winner takes all type of uh, philosophy. And, you know, whatever it turns out to be, I, I personally believe there's room um, for all of the providers and we have to be able to work together as far as finding now, now if, if it's a hybrid, um, if it's a, hey, we're going to contract with you or there's so many different models out there. But I think the reality is, is that us in the fire service and our partners over in, in the private industry have to come to the realization that realistically we need each other and it, we're, we're stronger if we work together rather than um, constantly fighting and trying to do a winner-take-all type of mentality. Because I think that if you just look at the workforce in of itself, it's very challenging for somebody to do it all by themselves um, without having some sort of you know a hybrid or some sort of a mutual understanding of how that's going to work. Um, do you see it different? No, I, uh, I can't agree anymore, Ray. It, it really, we've all got our talents. We've got our specialties. We've got um, the, the privates are really good at certain things that we just don't have the experience. We, we can't do better. We can't do it all maybe right now. And so we rely on them. And I think um, you're right. The, the turf wars kind of got to back down and we've got to be able to start working a little bit more in cooperation um, in recognizing what our ultimate goal is. And that's to get ambulance services in our communities with an adequate response time of the expectation of, of our patients and making sure that we're meeting those goals. And however, however is best for each jurisdiction is it, more than likely going to look a little different up and down the state. Yeah, I think that came into view for me. I, I had the opportunity um, as the Cal Chiefs rep to uh, sit on the APOC committee through the state and you know, I went in with that with that committee, really looking at it from a standpoint of, hey, I'm going to focus solely on what the fire service mission is, and and so on and so forth. And we have this piece of the pie, and this is what it is. And boy, by the time I got done with that, um, it really opened my eyes to really more of an EMS system, and what part we play in that system. But there's a huge ecosystem that is is way bigger than just us. And however, we have a lot of touch points to it and understanding how to connect all those touch points um, is a really powerful thing for the fire service to, to start to understand. And, you know, again, we're, we're not, we're, we're a part of it. We're not, we're, we're not, we're not the entire ecosystem. So I think as we continue to play this out, we're going to see this thing and have us have a better understanding of, of what our role is, where we are, but there's a lot of touch points, you know, such as, you know, even the, you know, the, 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 you know, the transporting from hospital to hospital and, and doing all of those different things. And, 
I think the mental health uh, thing is going to start really kicking in. There's just so many different touch points to that, that I think it's going to be a crucial uh, bunch of conversations that we have uh, in the future and, and what that's going to look like. It's not going to just be about ambulance transport. It's truly about an EMS system and what, what critical parts we're going to play in that. And I think that's where we need to look at it from, from that perspective, maybe in the future. You used a, a, a very appropriate term there, uh, the ecosystem and the ecosystem of the healthcare system yeah. is much bigger than just what we have a perspective of at the fire service level, right? We get irritated why our ambulance is stuck at the hospital. We got to get them out of there. And, you know, and, and the more relationships and the communications that you have with the hospital CEOs, they start to point to other things, right? Why are you bringing in these patients that don't belong in the ER? And we point to the LEMSA, we point to EMSA. We say, because we don't have any other places we can take them. Yeah, we understand that they should go somewhere else, but we have no options. So we got to take them to you. And then the, C the same COO points to, hey, these, uh, these, these uh, skilled nursing facilities, they don't have any beds, so I can't push them out. They're, they're stuck here. I've got no other place to put them. And so it is a huge ecosystem that relies on all of these things to start uh, to really function efficiently. And we're just, we're victims, unfortunately, of, of a part of that ecosystem that is not working efficiently. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We, we need to be part of the, the larger conversation from the California Fire Service perspective, that's for sure. And uh, and I know just talking to a lot of the chiefs around, they're, they're, up on the, they're up on the topics, they're up on what's going on. And so I look forward to us. Um, at the end of the day, the, we're in the can-do business and we figure out a lot of things. So we just need to figure out what our, what our role is and how we can help um, our yeah. partners in healthcare to, uh, to help us get there. But is there, is there any other stuff that um, that is kind of going on, uh, you know, in all those conversations with the, the, the big shot Metro chiefs that you're discussing that you wanted to touch on? Oh, come on. We, we tell so many secrets. I don't know that I want to expose. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, you know, I will tell you that there, there's probably a topic there that. That we don't have enough expertise to really even talk about too much as our group. All we know is it's, it, it's a problem and it's gonna, it's a growing problem for us and we don't have the answers. And so maybe that's why we don't like to talk about them. But uh, you know what? The, the fire service is going to be significantly challenged with how we deal with the lithium ion battery issues and this growing concern and risk to our personnel. And we here in San Diego, and I'm sure every other city is seeing an increase in fires related to lithium ion batteries whether they're the individual scooters and, and, and bikes, uh, the vehicle fires that we're seeing out there, um, or the battery storage areas. All, all of those things are significant risk to us. And the problem is there is no, we, we don't know what the best practice is to put those fires out. We don't, and then, and then what do we do on the overhaul? How about the hazardous materials? Where do we transport these things to? Um, Wrecking yards won't take these vehicles anymore because they're still igniting 10 days later. Uh, we are dealing with all sorts of problems associated with the lithium ion battery that we just do not know. And it's growing and growing as we know. And we know that legislation is gonna eventually have to make a, make a change here and really start to impact that, how, how things are stored, how things are charged, uh, areas, all sorts of things. But until then, what we have quickly realized is that until the, that legislation can catch up, our best um, attack on this is to educate the public. And so we have spent a lot of time and money into uh, public service announcements um, all over the city to try to educate the folks of, of the risks associated with lithium ion batteries, with them being charged with aftermarket chargers, being overcharged, charging them in living areas, all of those things. Because you know what, if, if one parent heard that and changed what they allow in their house to allow their kid to charge their bike in their bedroom right next to their, uh, to their bed, um, if we can just change some of that behavior, we've been successful. It's gonna take a long time to, to have the ordinances here in San Diego to catch up on that. But when you've got people storing those, charging those in large residential high rises here, and everybody else is at risk because of that. Um, it, 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 it's a growing problem. 
We just sent over a battalion chief who's really a subject matter expert in lithium-ion batteries. We sent him over to Data Hawaii because the EPA is looking for answers. They don't know what to do with all these batteries out in, in, in Hawaii after the fires. And so if they don't know what to do, and we don't know as fire service leaders what to do, um, we are, are going to be grasping for a while until we really develop some best practices. So that's probably a, a, another one that is going to be a great podcast idea, Ray, if I'm planning it for you now. Mm -hmm. uh, but we are going to continue to struggle with not only the suppression, but all the other factors that come with lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, I know I had the opportunity to sit in on a fire scope and uh, um, meeting, and that was definitely a high um, priority for that group to start talking about. It's it's interesting just, you know, to, to your point is, the legislation is going to take such a long time to to catch up to where the technology is today, or, or the or the, the the flawed technology in some cases. And uh, you know, you, you make a great point of that. We we do have to get out in 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 front of this, and and, and that's the only wep weapon we really have right now um, is is to get out and notify the public and and make them more aware. Because otherwise, uh, we're we're gonna you know run into some really, really bad situations of because people just don't know, you know, and they think it's safe. It's like, hey, I bought this off of Amazon or I bought this off of whatever and it's got to be safe. So I'm going to plug it in and stick it right next to my my bed. And and next thing you know, they're their they're families in trouble, you know, so. Totally. Um, it, it is. And so even a, even a small behavior change at, at the family level, can be significant and, and really until we can get legislation to kind of catch up. Yeah. Well, hey, I appreciate your your time and and I, I know you're busy and I appreciate you carving out a little time today to jump on and give us a little perspective from uh, the, the 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 Metro chiefs. And, you know, as, as, as we talk, I think that, you know, we, we probably have a lot more in common with with large departments and then in, in uh, medium size and smaller departments. And, you know, obviously it's just the volume and, and how much you're probably dealing with uh, compared to, to what we deal with. So um, I, I truly appreciate uh, you jumping on and I appreciate the relationship that we have with the Metro Fire Chiefs and uh, look forward to seeing you um, at Cal Chiefs if you're, if you're going. You, you're going to go to the well, conference this year? We'll absolutely be there. Yep. We, in fact, uh, uh, Metro Chiefs has their in-person meeting there. And so yep. we'll have that the conference and uh, i look forward to the conference there in uh in your neck of the woods right well yeah i appreciate it. it's going to be in ontario this year and yeah looking forward to closing out my time on the uh, board of, of cal chiefs in my own hometown so that's going to be a lot of fun and i look forward to seeing everyone there and uh it's going to be a good time so uh chief stole thank you again so so much for for jumping on with me and um we'll, we'll check you out at in ontario and maybe we'll uh we'll adult cocktail We'll have to catch up at the command post. <laughs> there you go. We'll see you, buddy. Thank you.